Now, brothers and sisters, again, this is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. We come this morning to also a beautiful chapter in the book of Genesis. Uh, there is much that is taking place here in this 24th chapter, but there's also much repetition in this chapter, which is why it's such a long chapter. Because the chapter is so long, though, uh, there can be a challenge to miss the point. As I've said before, to uh, see the forest, uh, miss the forest through the trees. So this morning, let's pray that the Lord give us at least patience to understand at least the main point of this story. Let me also say, some of you may see in the title of your chapter, A Bride for Isaac. Some of you may also see something that says as a title, uh, Isaac Finds a Wife, something to that effect. Uh, this chapter is not a guideline of how to find a wife. Or if you're a, a woman, it's not a guideline of how to find a husband. That we may anticipate, great, as a single person, I'm going to get to, I'm going to get all of the secret answers to how to get a man or how to get a woman. That's not the point of this chapter. Now, while there is, uh, it, there's truth to uh, some of the, the disciplines and some of the, uh, the things that we see about Isaac in finding his wife, that's not the point of the chapter. That's very important. This chapter is also romantic. When we come to the very end of this chapter, we're going to see eyes meeting for the very first time. And it's almost as if these two individuals will float toward one another and live happily ever after. Even that is not the point of this chapter. The love that is highlighted in this chapter is not the love between a man and a woman. The love that is highlighted in this chapter is the love that God has for his people. So let that be at the forefront of your minds as we uh, walk through this story. The story is about God. The story is about God and his great faithful love. Uh, this, this chapter, in this chapter, there is no direct revelation from God. Meaning, God is not necessarily speaking in this chapter. But even still, the name of God is evoked 17 times in this chapter. Therefore, this chapter is all about God. He is the one who is ordering all things in this chapter. He is the one who is faithfully and providentially bringing his word to pass. So what I'd like to do this morning is to go over the story so that we might get a sense of what's taking place. At the same time, as we are running into different characters, I'd like to warn you of another thing not to do. The story is, is not primarily intended for us to model the characteristics or the characters that we find in this story. Does that make sense? So the story is not about a love story between a man and a woman. It's not about how to find a wife. And it's also not intended for us to see the different characteristics that are found in each of these personalities and model those as well. Not the point of the chapter. While there are two lessons that we can learn from the different characters in this chapter, again, God is the star of this chapter. And God's the star of every chapter, by the way. So then let's work this chapter. We're going to see the main point of this chapter. And then we're going to finally draw some parallels between uh, this Old Testament story and its New Testament parallel. We'll do some biblical theology together, okay? Genesis chapter 24. Number one, first point, an overview of Genesis chapter 24. Now let me say to you this. Uh, you're going to find maybe sometimes you want to write down a specific note. That's fine. Get a sense of the story. Right? There's going to be some details. Get a sense of the story. Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. We'll read those first. We will not read every single verse. I'm going to tell you some of the story. I'm going to read some of the passages uh, because I think it will flow better that way. Genesis 24, 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh and, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son, Isaac. As you well know, this is Moses who was writing the book of Genesis, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking to the children of Israel, 
And as he begins this chapter, he begins with a problem. A lot of times when we are reading the scriptures, especially when we're reading narratives, there's a problem, there's a solution. There's sin, and there's a promise of grace. There's rebellion, and there's forgiveness. In this chapter, that same motif, that same pattern is continuing. There's a problem in the beginning of the chapter. What's the problem? Verse 1, Abraham was old, advanced in age. God has promised Abraham land, the land of Canaan. God has promised Abraham many offspring, and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, what's the problem then? Abraham and Sarah have seen the initial fulfillment of their promises at their old age in the birth of their miracle son, Isaac. They've seen uh, that seed begin to sprout, right? But now there's a problem because we've just dealt with in the previous chapter, Sarah is dead. The next chapter begins with, and now Abraham is old. Do you see the problem that's developing? Abraham is coming toward the end of his life. He's advanced in years. The matriarch is dead. There is no mother in Israel. Not only this, but Isaac is 40 years old. Nothing wrong with being 40 years old, but Isaac has no wife. Nothing wrong with being 40 years old and having no wife, except for the fact that Isaac is the promised child. Isaac is the one through whom the nation of Israel will be built. He, he's the one through whom many descendants will come, and Abraham is getting old. And he has not even seen the fact that his, his son is married. It could be a temptation for Abraham to say, God, is this going to happen? My son is 40 and he is not even married yet. It would appear by all outward appearances that the hope of the fulfillment of God's promises, the hope is becoming dim. Abraham's old. Coming toward the end of his life, Sarah is dead. The promised child is 40 and still has not been married. Unless Abraham can find a wife for Isaac, there will be no nation. There will be no Israel. And if there is no nation, there is no Israel, then there ultimately is no Messiah through whom all the nations will be blessed. What will Abraham do? He must find a son. Now, quick note for you unmarried people here. Do you see how this does not apply to you? You don't have the future of a nation depending upon your marriage and multiplying. So to take this direction, take this into the direction of this is how you find a wife. Well, this really isn't about you right now. It's about ultimately the Messiah. Back to the story. It would have been easy for Abraham to select a wife from the Canaanite woman. Think about that. There are no women around you. I mean, none. Well, there are women, but they are Canaanite women. Well, what's the problem with Canaanite women? They were easily accessible. Uh, Abraham could have even advanced his own fortune by maybe getting together with another prince or someone in Canaan that would maybe build his wealth. He could help God out. Abraham's done this before, hasn't he? He's learned the folly of leaning on your, his own understanding. He, he's learned that... Uh, when man forsakes the promises of God and the commands of God, when man is wise in his own eyes, they are destined to fall. Uh, brothers and sisters, when we are wise in our own eyes, when we do things according to how we think we, sh we should do them and forsake what God has said, we will fall. Abraham does not do this. He's learned his lesson. He calls his most faithful servant, most likely it's Eleazar of Damascus. We've met him before. He calls him to a most important mission. Let's look at verses 2 and 4 again. Abraham, uh, we've already read him. Abraham is insisting that his servant not get a wife from the daughters of Canaan. He's sending his servant on a mission. Go and get a wife, but don't get this woman from the Canaanites. For a few reasons. These are important. God has separated Abraham from the, and his descendants from the other nations. They were to be a holy nation, a distinct nation. The Canaanites, what was wrong with them? They were idolaters. They were those who did not worship God. And, and listen to this. 
they also lived under the curse of Canaan. Now, if, if you have remembered our studies through the book of Genesis, uh, there is a man named Noah who said to his son after his son sinned against him, curse be Canaan. The Canaanites are descendants of Canaan, and they are living under a curse. God forbade their marriage between between the two of them because they were under a curse, because they were worshiping false gods, because he did not want his people to be led astray by false gods. And Genesis chapter 15, verse 15 through 16, God makes it clear that his punishment against the Amorites was not yet complete. Now, you know, who are the Amorites? The Amorites are the Canaanites. So God is saying, there is a judgment to come to the Canaanites, and it's not yet complete. Therefore, do not intermingle with them, for they will be judged. If Isaac is to inherit this land, and he is, he must not marry those who are destined to disinherit this land. You see the problem there? If he marries those who are going to be disinherited from the land, there will be a big conflict over who receives this land. Abraham makes his servant swear that he would not find a woman from among, among the Canaanites, but that he would return to, now where? Abraham's homeland. And to bring a wife from there. This is Ur. I, I have actually been pronouncing Ur wrong. It's actually Or. Or of the, of the Chaldeans. Or of the Chaldeans. He tells them, go back there. Bring a wife from my clan. Now, what were the people of Abraham's clan like? What was Abraham before he was called by God? He was a pagan. God called, or Abraham calls his servant to go back to a pagan land, Mesopotamia, to receive a woman who is most likely a pagan herself, but bring her so that she may marry his son Isaac. Interesting, and we'll find out more about that, I think, as we progress in the story. He calls his servant to place his hand under his thigh. You may have read this before in the scriptures and say, what does that mean? Place your hand under your thigh. Uh, placing the hand under the thigh is, is kind of like our today, placing your hand on the Bible. But it's also even more than that. Uh, the placement of the hand under the thigh was near the reproductive organ. It had something to do with a symbolic nature of uh, promise me on the fact that on my children and on your children. It is something to that effect. Verse 5, now let's read that. The servant, most likely Eleazar, uh, sees a problem. Let's read verse 5. The servant said to him, suppose that the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Now, the servant is asking a fair question, and here it is. What kind of woman just leaves with a stranger? That's the question. But not only leaving with a stranger, but then travels back with a stranger to marry another stranger. That's a fair question, isn't it? He's saying, if she won't come back with me, should I go bring Isaac and then bring her to him so that they can meet each other and it can all be done formally? Abraham says, not at all. Do not take my son out of this land. Isaac was to stay in the land of his birth. He's to stay in Canaan. Why? Because his presence there is a constant reminder of God's promise that this land is yours. Imagine that. He will not even take his son out of the land. No, son, you stay here because your presence here is a constant declaration that this is the land that God has promised us. So the servant, he prepares to travel 400 miles, 400 miles, to find a woman who is related to Abraham and who is willing to go back to Canaan with this servant to marry another stranger. Now, this may seem like an impossible task, doesn't it? Go to a strange land. They don't know me. I don't know them. Tell them someone wants to marry you back over here. You must come, and then they must fall in love and be married. It seems like it's impossible by all earthly accounts. But before the servant of Abraham travels on, we are given the very last words, or at least the last recorded words, of Abraham, the man of faith. Let's read verse 7 and 8. 
the Lord, the God of heaven, this is Abraham speaking, who took me from the from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying to the descendants, I to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and he and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. Abraham assures the servant of this. God is with you. God will send his angel before you. And, and those who are reading this letter, they can relate to that statement. Who are, who's reading the letter? The children of Israel. How can they relate to God will send his angel before you? Because just as God would send the angel before Abraham's servant, so the Lord, at this present time, when they're reading this passage, the Lord is going before Israel in a pillar, a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they are understanding, in the same way this servant has gone before, uh, servant of Abraham has gone before him, the Lord, so the Lord is also going before us. And guiding us and seeing to, seeing to it that his word will be fulfilled for us. Later, uh, as they left for Sinai, for Canaan, left Sinai for Canaan, the Lord promised, I am going to send an angel in, in, in front of you to guard you and to bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. So they are hearing this promise of an angel going before them and seeing it before their very eyes and also reading about it with Abraham. Now, Abraham, although these are the last recorded words of Abraham, Abraham will go on to live 175 years. He will be 175 years old. From this time, it will be a few more decades before he dies. But it is, these are the last recorded words. And these last recorded words, they display a man who has grown in his faith before God. In these last words, we see a man who believes in the covenant promises of God. And who will act in obedience to what God has said. These are the last words of Abraham. And let us all strive to end this well. These are the words of Abraham. Uh, and they would be sounding. Maybe even echoing in the ears of his servant. As he loaded up ten camels. Provisions and gifts. And he sets out for the north. Now I want you to notice this. Notice how Moses covers 400 miles of travel, which was at that time a month-long journey. He covers a month-long journey in just one verse and a half. There's a lot that goes on in a 400-mile journey, isn't there? Uh, we all know from long travels, we can tell you stories. Sometimes the travel to get there is more exciting than the time that we actually spent in our destination. But only a verse and a half is spent Discussing the travel. You would think it would require more information. The verse and a half for 400 miles. And then maybe 50 something verses. Describe when he arrives. Let's go to verse 11. He made the camels. He's arrived now. Okay. He's in Nahor. This is where Abraham is from. He made the camels kneel down outside the city. Now listen to this, by the well of water at evening time. What time is that? The time when women go to draw out water. What is he in Nahor, Abraham's country? What is he there for? He's fine. He's there to find a wife. Providentially, he has arrived in the evening. And providentially, it is the exact time when women come out to draw water. His camels are in need of water. He's arrived uh, on his mission, at least, at the very time that women are coming out. He's looking for a wife for his servant. The impossible mission is already, it's already seeing some kind of fruit. Verse 12 and 14. What does he do? He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show your loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring. And the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your, your jar so that I may drink. And who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one 
whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. He prays. He prays fervently. And he appeals to what about God? God's loving kindness. Another passage says God's faithfulness. Another version. The, the, the faithful, loving kindness of God that you've shown to Abraham. In, in making covenant with Abraham. May it be shown now. And he asks for something specific. May the girl who says, who I asked for a drink, may, her say, may she say, drink. And I will also give water to your camels as well. Um, have, you ever, have you ever prayed, God, if you really want me to do this, make that leaf move right now. <laughs> you ever done that? I've done that plenty of times. God, if you really want me to do this, make a red car drive by. Hmm, right? Oh, gosh, it was purple. Fuchsia, maybe it was red, right? Is he praying for a sign? It may seem like he's praying for a sign. He's praying for God's will to be done. He's praying that God's will will be done. But notice what he's praying for. He has appealed to the loving kindness of God. He's, he's appealing to a certain kind of woman, though. And not necessarily what she says, but what she will do. He's, he's praying for a woman, and he uses loving kindness. He's, he's praying for a woman that will be the counterpart, the female counterpart, to loving kindness. He's praying for a godly woman. He's praying for a hospitable woman. He's praying for a woman. Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute. He's praying for a hard-working woman, one who will serve. And the Bible says in verse 15, before he had finished speaking. Now, brothers and sisters, we are reading this, right? As we're reading this, it's becoming apparent that before he had finished speaking, we know that this is happening, but he does not. He's literally in the middle of his prayer before he can even say amen. And already the faithful covenantal covenant keeping God has already answered his prayer. Look at verse 15. Before he had finished praying, behold, Rebecca. Now listen to the background that is given. Who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. We have just been introduced to the woman. The, before she can even, before he can even say amen, she's coming in. <laughs> I mean, you've got to see this. He's praying. He's in the middle of his prayer. And as he's, before he's even said amen, here comes Rebecca walking in with her water jar. Amen. There she is. Who is she? He does not know. We know. Uh, Moses has just given us a, a, a lineage, if you will. Her name is Rebecca. He's given her clan. She's of the house of Abraham. She is his grand niece. That means this. His brother's son's daughter. He's, she is his grand niece. But all he sees this, at this time is a servant woman. That's all he knows. We know who this is. Guess who else knows who this is? Those who are first reading this. The children of Israel. They are reading the name of Rebekah. Who is Rebekah? She is the mother of Jacob. Who is Jacob? Jacob will one day be named Israel. They're saying, there is the queen of Israel. There she is. God has provided her. And the Bible describes her as being beautiful, being a virgin. But we also see that she is hospitable and hardworking. Why do we say hardworking? The servant approaches her and says, can I have a drink? And she says, drink? Not only will I give you a drink, let, let me... Get water for your camels. Ten of them. Do you know anything about camels? I don't. I had to read this to know. Uh, the servant has ten camels. It is said that a, that a camel that has gone a few days without drinking water can drink as much as, much as 25 gallons of water. How long have they been traveling? 400 miles, a month and a half long journey. Therefore, it is possible and probably even probable that she has drawn maybe 80 to 100 draws of water from a well. Uh, gallons, 
they are probably having 80 to 100 gallons that she had to draw of water. This was a tough woman. To go down to a well, which is downstairs, to draw from that water and then go back upstairs with that water on your shoulders and to continue to draw and draw, this woman's character is being put on display before this servant of Abraham. He's watching this woman and saying, whoa, this is a special woman. Israel, who is first reading about the children of Israel, who is first reading about their queen, Rebecca, they are saying, whoa, our mother was a bad mamma jamma. When she was done, the servant of Abraham is amazed by her work. And what does he do? He brings out to her a gold ring and brings out to her gold bracelets. And, and the Bible says that these gold bracelets and gold uh, jewelry, they are spectacular. And he has one important question to ask. It's in verse 23. Who are you? Now, we know who she is. The servant does not know. He's just amazed by her work, amazed by her humility, amazed by her hospitality. And his question is, who in the world are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house? And what does Rebecca say? She is the answer to his prayer. She is the answer to Abraham's prayer. She is the fulfillment of God's promise. She is the continuing fulfillment of God's promise. Rebecca reveals that she is of Abraham's household, and she is Abraham's grandniece. When the servant hears how she is related to Abraham, what does he do? He bows his head and he worships the Lord. Now imagine, you've been sent on an impossible task, you've traveled 400 miles, you've got there on the day when, and the time when they draw water, the woman you've been seeking is right there, everything is perfect. Well, what would be your response? Verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his, there it is again, loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. He's expressing that God has shown his love, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Rebecca is literally a godsend. There are no hurdles. Uh, oh, there are still more hurdles to overcome, though. Uh, here they are. Will Rebecca's family be willing to let her go with a stranger? Will Rebecca be willing to go? At this time, she's just been introduced to a man who's given her a bunch of jewelry for, his, for uh, her work. Rebecca returns home after hearing what the servant says to her. She returns home. And she tells her family what has happened. And we are introduced to a man named Laban. Now, if you've read through the book of Genesis and you know anything about Jacob and Laban, this is that Laban. He's an interesting character. Uh, we're going to meet him more again later. But it's interesting for us to see, important for us to see his character at this particular time. Look at verse 30 and notice where Laban's eyes are. Look at verse 30. This is Laban speaking, or this is uh, Moses telling us about Laban's eyes. When he saw the ring <laughs> and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. What did he do? He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Now, Moses purposely does this. He pur purposely tells us where Laban's eyes are. He sees the ring. He sees the bracelets. These are gold. They are spectacular. But also, he goes to the man. And when he goes to the man, where is he standing? By the camels. What does that have to do with anything? Uh, camels would be the Bible's equivalent to standing by the Rolls Royce. Because a camel was an animal for the rich. Laban has seen the gold. He's seen the jewelry, and then he's waiting for the person that he wants more from waiting by his car, if you will, the camel. What does he do? In verse 31, listen to, listen to how uh, sneaky this guy is. Verse 31. And he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. 
Why do you stand outside since I prepared the house and a, and a place for the camels? What are you doing outside? Come, get in here, silly guy. Come on in here. What are you doing standing outside? Come in. I've got food. I've got a place for the camels. The servant, though, he's insisting that he's on a mission. I'm not here to delay. I'm not here to play around. I'm on a mission from my master. Uh, He will not even have a bite to eat, he says. I won't touch food until my mission is complete. In verse 35, he begins to tell Laban and Laban's family why he is there. And in verse 35, he begins by saying this. My master is very rich. (laughs) Now, think about this. Why is he telling these strangers that his master is very rich. Whenever you read through the Bible, ask the Bible questions. Why do you say that? Well, what does he ultimately want to achieve? He wants to bring this woman back with him. And he's automatically seeing that someone is kind of uh, enticed. He has the green eye, if you will. Someone is enticed by riches. Therefore, if he is enticed by riches, the riches may allow him or cause him to say, go, as long as there's more where this came from. He begins by telling Rebecca's family how wealthy Abraham is. This would have caught their attention. Now, he proceeds to tell the story all over again. So, therefore, everything that I have just said to you, the servant of Abraham says all over again. Let's jump then to verse 49. After telling the story, verse 49, uh, here's what he says. So now if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Basically, here's what's happened. What's it going to be? Can she come with me or not? I don't have time to waste. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel, Bethuel is his father, uh, the brother of Abraham, they come, uh, the matter comes to the, come, oh, the matter comes from the Lord. So we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Uh, they are using the name of the Lord a lot. Let, let's be clear. Laban, although he's speaking on behalf of his father, Laban is not a believer. He does not worship the Lord. We're going to find out later. Laban is a, is a pagan. He's from the pagan land, of, or, of, or he is a pagan himself. La- Laban is a manipulator. And he's trying to play the game along with, with Abraham's servant in order to get more from Abraham's servant. So don't be deceived by this Lord, uh, this use of Lord, use of the Lord's name. Laban's an opportunist. Uh, opportunist. He wants to get rich. Okay? They accept this proposal. Uh, you guys might understand this today. But there are still bride prices that are paid today in countries uh, in the East. You still must give riches in order to purchase, if you will, or at least show your appreciation to the parents of the one you want to marry. And if it's a valuable price, they will say, now you can take our daughter. They have given to this man so many riches that they are more than willing to let this woman go. Soon, the servant of Abraham is ready to return. He's ready to go. But Laban and his family, they want to delay this process 10 more days. They said, ah, why so hasty? Let's, let's wait 10 days. There is usually a celebration that would take place when there is an engagement or a marriage. Abraham's servant has no time for these festivities. He wants to get back home. He wants to show mission accomplished. Rebecca then is kind of placed, uh, the, the responsibility or the choices made for her or uh, given to her. It's up to her. If she wants to go, she can go. She's, just, she's called in. Rebecca, what will you do? Will you go with this man or not? Now, I want you to pause for a second and let me slow down. Think about Rebecca. All of this is happening so fast. She's young. She's got her whole life ahead of, ahead of her. And here is a stranger from another land. Uh, he is a part of... Her uncle, great uncle's family, but yet still she she doesn't know him. And she must now travel 400 miles to go meet someone that that will be her husband. And her response 
is I will go. And it's a bold response. It's a a beautiful one even. Look at verse 16. So they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. It's an interesting blessing, isn't it? It's a similar blessing that Abraham received when he was called by God. It's a blessing of nations. It's a blessing of protection. She is, in a sense, the female counterpart to Abraham. She's called out of her country to go to a land that she does not know. And with that going is a promise of nations and being blessed. Now, there's another question. Will Isaac accept this bride? The scene then quickly switches back to Canaan. Let's read these last verses and we will close with this point. Close this point. And let's slow down this uh, narrative as well so you can get the, the, the weight of it. Now Isaac had come from Beriath Roy, Beriath High Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, camels were coming. Isaac is praying, as it were. And you see that Abraham is not mentioned anymore because there is meant to be a kind of transition between Abraham to now Isaac. Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. You can almost see this kind of romantic music playing in the background. Their eyes are meeting. She's coming down slowly off the camel, right? She said to the servant, who is that man? I don't think she said it that way. Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. She took her veil and covered herself because covering yourself with a veil is to say, I am your bride. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. She is therefore taking the place of Sarah. She is now the queen. And he took Rebekah. She became his wife. And he loved her. And listen to the end. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. There seems to be some kind of pain that still resided in Isaac after his mother's death. And the presence of Rebekah, it seems to be comforting to him. There was a new queen in Israel. Her name is Rebekah. Let's go to let's go to our second point, the main point, the main point, God's faithfulness. Uh, Number one was kind of an overview of the chapter. I hope that was helpful for you to see kind of the the whole idea of what's going on. What's the main point? And here it is. God's faithfulness. In every way throughout this chapter, the faithfulness of God is on display. The chapter begins with a dilemma. Abraham is old. He's well advanced in his years, and the son of promise is yet to be married and yet to have any children. What will become of the nation that God has promised Abraham? Will the promises of God be fulfilled? Will the promises of God fall dead to the ground? Will Abraham be put to shame for trusting in God? The Lord God faithfully and providentially answers all of those questions in this young woman, Rebecca. And while the servant uh, prays no less, imagine that. He's answering all the prayers while he's praying. Before he can even finish his prayer, the Lord is declaring that he is faithful to all of his promises. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is faithful. Faithfulness is the essential is essential to the being of God, meaning this without faithfulness, God would not be God to be unfaithful would be contrary to the nature of God. And this is impossible. Second Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. It's who he is. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness is one of the glorious perfections of God's being. 
He is, as it were, clothed in faithfulness. The psalmist declares in Psalm 89, faithfulness surrounds God. Psalm 35 says, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Everything about God is great. Everything about God is vast. Everything about God is incomparable. He never forgets. He never fails. He never falters. He never changes. He never forfeits his word. He's not like us, right? We forget. We fail. We falter. We change. We forfeit our word. But God is not like man. God is not like man that he should lie. No, the son of man that he should repent. He has said it and he will do it. God has spoken and he will always make good on what he has said. Brothers and sisters, his compassion never fails. His mercies are new every morning. The great hymn is, great is thy faithfulness, O God. God would not fail Abraham. Even though Abraham failed God. Plenty of times, God would not fail Abraham. He would be sure to bring all of his covenant promises to pass. All of his covenant promises are yes and amen. And this is the point of the passage. If God has said it, then he will perform it. It's, it's as easy as that in spite of what, by all outward appearances, seems to be uh, striking against God's promises being fulfilled. Abraham is old. It does not matter. Abraham is well advanced in years. It does not matter. Abraham's son is not married. It does not matter. He has no kids. It does not matter. What God has said, he will perform. The servant is sent on an impossible mission, yet God faithfully and providentially brings the queen of Israel when it seems that all hope is lost. If there was no Rebekah, then there was no Israel. And this was all the work of the covenant-keeping Lord of glory. God is true. His promises are sure, brothers and sisters. He can be trusted, brothers and sisters. He can be relied upon, brothers and sisters. There has, been never, there has never been yet one person who has ever trusted in God and been put to shame because of their trust in God. No person has ever trusted in God in vain. And we find this precious truth expressed almost everywhere in the Scriptures. For His people, God's people, we need to know that faithfulness is an essential part of the divine character of God. This is the basis of our confidence in him, isn't it? That he's faithful. Dear ones, it's one thing to, to say amen to this. To say, yes, I agree. That's quite another to act upon, isn't it? Abraham trusted in the faithfulness of God. And therefore he sent his servant in faith. Think about that. I trust you, God, that what you've said you will perform. Therefore, I'll send my servant to go find a wife. Now, it may seem contradictory, right? That trusting in God would simply mean that he would just stay in his tent. And that one day someone would knock on the flap of his tent and say, Here I am. I'm here to marry your son. God sent me. But it doesn't work that way, does it? When God makes promises, he also gives commands. God gives promises that, that he will fulfill, but he also gives commands that we must obey. Promises of God does not mean that we get to sit back idly and do nothing. The promises of God will often be a challenge. We must accept the doctrine of God's faithfulness, but we must not deny our duty in our daily lives. God has promised to sanctify you. It's not going to happen as we just stay home and do nothing. There is action involved, isn't there? There's reading of God's word. There is joining of the saints. There is prayer. There are ways in which we are going to be challenged and tested by people that are going to bring out things in our lives that are for what? To sanctify us. But that is the way God has done these things. God has promised to sanctify us. And sometimes the allure of the world can be so loud that we cannot hear the, the sweet accent of of God's still small voice calling us into deeper and, and more intimate fellowship with him in his word, in prayer, in the gathering of the saints. God has promised to provide for our daily needs. And oh gosh, uh, how often are we distracted by maybe what unbelievers have around us? 
by what unbelievers possess around us. And we are maybe tempted to, to covet earthly goods while ignoring the present state of their soul. God has promised to bring us safely to glory. And sometimes we are often anxious about many things, aren't we? Sometimes we look to this country or to other countries and we see that our security is being challenged, that our rights are being challenged, and our souls are often vexed. What's going to happen next? And we're constantly looking at current affairs and saying, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. Dear ones, do you believe that God will do all that he has said? Are you rest, resting with complete assurance that he who was promised is faithful? Trust me, I know that there are seasons in our lives that are not easy. To believe in God and to believe that God is faithful sometimes is not easy. But it could have been very easy for Abraham in the twilight of his life. When his wife is dead, his son is unmarried, uh, and all he owns is a tomb. To begin to doubt that God is faithful. I know this. I know that our faith is sorely tried at times. That our eyes are often blurred by all of the tears that we've cried. And that we sometimes lose sight of his love for us. Hear the words of Isaiah the prophet. Who is among you that fears the Lord? That obeys the voice of his servant. That walks in darkness and has no light. Who is that? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. What's the encouragement? Trust in God. Is there fear? Trust in God. Are there worries? Trust in God. Are there times when our souls are vexed? Even still, trust in God. You may have to make sometimes the same declaration that Christ made to the devil. Get out of here, Satan. But do not for one second stop trusting in the faithfulness of God. You may not be able to harmonize all of God's mysterious dealings with you. Why this? Why that? Wait upon him. You will see. It will make sense and maybe it won't. But he is yet to be unfaithful thus far. And our God is unchanging. Therefore, trust in him. God is faithful. He preserves his people. It's why you're still walking with him. <laughs> God is faithful. He disciplines his people. It's, it's why we are going through tough challenges because he's revealing sin and putting it to death. Trust and believe that he will ultimately bring you and I and all of his sons and all of his daughters to glory where you and I will rest in that heavenly land, the heavenly land of Canaan. And that will be an eternal one. That is the point of this passage. I hope that you see that. But there's one last thing, and that's number three. The New Testament parallel to this. And this is going to be a brief point, but you may remember last week that I made the point that Christ is the scope of Scripture. So then we must ask, where's Christ in this passage? There is a redemptive historical, meaning redemptive, meaning God is, is bringing all things to the cross of Christ, to the life to the death and to the resurrection of Christ. There is a redemptive historical progression that is taking place and that is further being developed here. We know the first gospel, right? John or Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And all along we have been tracing the line of the righteous as the promised seed that will crush the serpent's head, will eventually appear. So we are tracing the line of the righteous. The scriptures are progressively showing the faithfulness of God to that covenant promise, Genesis 3.15, that promise of grace, that, that promised covenant of grace, wherein man will be redeemed from his enslavement to sin. So then in this chapter, where is it? It is once again the Lord continuing the line of the seed of the woman. Here it is. By providing Rebecca as his appointed wife for Isaac. No, what do you mean? Had God not selected Rebecca as a wife, there's no Jacob. If there's no Jacob, there's no Israel. And if there is no Israel, there is no Messiah. 
God is about the continuation of the line of the woman, the righteous line. In the fullness of time, the Lord in his providence and faithfulness selects another woman. And she is also young. And she is also a virgin. And she will bring to fulfillment the promised seed who will crush the serpent's head. The Lord will send his servant, the angel Gabriel, to that woman and to present to her what seems like an impossible task. You will be pregnant even though you've never been with man. You've been chosen by God to give birth to a Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. And like Rebecca, who said, I will go, this woman and her name is Mary. Here's the great call of God and says, here I am. The servant of the Lord, let it be done according to your word. That seed that the virgin Mary gave birth to is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He is Abraham's greater son. He is the true and faithful Israel. He is the Messiah. Uh, truly God, truly man. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God sent his son. Salvation is now offered not only to Israel but to everyone who believes in the fulfillment of God's promises that in Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Dear ones, that's the point. This woman, Rebecca, is pointing to another woman, Mary. This woman, Rebecca, who will marry the promised seed, they will give birth to Israel, who will one day give birth to the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there a love story here? Yes! It is the love that God has for his people. That he would send his son to earth. That he would offer to his people something more valuable than gold rings and bracelets. That he would offer salvation that was purchased not by silver and gold. But by, but by the precious blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. The life and death unto obedience for those who will place their faith in his finished work. I pray that you see this as being the main point of chapter 24. Let's pray.